Support for this episode comes from the University of San Francisco's SWIG program in Jewish Studies and Social Justice, better known as JSSJ. The JSSJ department is excited to be offering a graduate-level certificate in JEDI, Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. JEDI classes meet the moment with supportive learning that helps navigate an evolving Jewish community landscape. Upcoming courses include Antisemitism and Intersectionality with acclaimed professor Aaron Han Tapper and Environmental Justice and Jewish Perspectives, Land, People, and Power with renowned activist and educational leader Ariella Ronai Hinich. Apply by January 12th to get in on spring classes before they begin. Just head to usfca.edu slash jedi. A brief note before this episode begins. We, and I'm sure all of you listening, are holding feelings of anger and frustration and sadness as we pray for peace in Israel and Gaza and for the healing of our world. We release this episode while holding pain in our hearts, and if now is not the time to listen to something that will feel separated from the tragedy of our moment right now, just save this episode for a later date. You can come back to it. If now would be precisely the moment to take a second and consider the future of our Jewish community, in a conversation that does not tie directly to Israel-Palestine, we invite you to listen in. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 407, Spiritual Hardware. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And today we're continuing our series of episodes looking at the digital Jewish ecosystem, that place on the internet that we and you and all of our listeners and guests live in and are part of. Our guest today is Brett Luxbeiser, which is not necessarily a name that you would know unless you are a Judaism Unbound superfan, and you might remember him from episode 98. That's not 198 or 298. That's episode 98. So that is a deep cut into our back catalog. Or you may also know him if you are a fan of Jewish texts on the internet, because Brett Luxbeiser is the co-founder and former chief technology officer of Safaria which is that digital library for Jewish texts where you can go directly or even if you just Google a passage from the Torah, you're probably brought there. And so many of us have been impacted by this work, even if we don't necessarily directly know it. Safaria is a site that has been visited millions of times by users around the world, Jewish users, not Jewish users. And as such, it represents one of the great successes, one of the great landing places of the Jewish digital world. But we're not going to be talking to Brett about Safaria today. We already did that back in episode 98, which you should listen to. It was a great episode. It was a great conversation. But today we are talking about Brett Luxbeiser's second act or second Jewish act, which is a project called Spiritual Hardware. We're going to talk about that soon. But before we do, just a reminder that the second annual occurrence of Apocryphest, Hanukkah Unbound and Uncanonized is on its way to you. That is going to happen in just a few days when Hanukkah begins. And I guess when you do something twice, it's annual. So it is our annual deep dive into the books of the Apocrypha, because for us, Hanukkah is an opportunity to push ourselves beyond the boundaries of the traditional biblical canon, because the story of Hanukkah is actually from one of the books that's not in the Bible, that's part of the Apocrypha, the books of the Maccabees. And we push ourselves into the wild and wonderful realm of Jewish texts that have not in the past been treated as central to Judaism. So if you're interested in diving into the Apocrypha with us and our partner in this project, the Torah Studio, an organization that we know and love and whose founder, Liana Wertman, was our guest on episode 267 of Judaism Unbound, just head over to judaismunbound.com apocrypha. That's A-P-O-C-R-Y-P-H-A, judaismunbound.com apocrypha to learn more. And now to introduce our guest today, Brett Luxbeiser is the co-founder and former CTO, Chief Technology Officer of Safaria, the free online library of Jewish texts that I described before. And he is now the founder of a project called Spiritual Hardware Labs, which creates beautiful, magical, internet-connected objects that offer short daily moments of spiritual experience and at the same time create a tangible, positive impact in the world. Brett Luxbeiser has 18 years of experience designing and launching digital projects, beginning at Google, where he had a focus on front-end software engineering, user experience, and managing teams, and of course, as the founder and CTO at Safaria. The idea of internet-connected ritual objects seems so obvious, and yet nobody has done it. So we're so excited to explore this new frontier of the digital Jewish ecosystem, 
Brett Luxpizer, welcome back to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you on again. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back here. So I want to go back in time about seven months. You and I had a conversation and you were telling me about the idea for spiritual hardware. And I think I literally said you had me at hello or (laughs) it was something. You had me at something. It was pretty overpowering to sort of understand that something like this could come into existence. So can we go back to those good old days of the spring of 2023 and tell me a little bit about how you were thinking about spiritual hardware when you first started thinking about it? The whole idea came about from a conversation I started having with a venture capitalist named David Galper. Um, and he was you know, really interested in sort of getting involved in philanthropy in ways that were more like some project that wouldn't have happened otherwise, and uh, not just sort of write a check to another charity. So we started spitting a few ideas around back and forth. And we really landed on something that didn't feel like something big to me. It felt like something worth spending time on, which was to recreate the tzedakah box for a digital age. Um, that is the, you know, the, the Jewish practice of having a, a box, an object for collecting money for charity. You know, this kind of a box, it exists in Jewish families, homes all around the world. It's pretty common. But it doesn't really work, right? Like for the most part, these objects are symbolic, that they sit on a shelf where someone can see them. But people don't actually put money into them because people don't have cash anymore in their pockets. Or even if they do fill this thing up with cash, they don't actually take that cash out and you know change it out for a check that they can actually write to a charity. Yeah, so I think that's probably like the biggest downside of the Sadaka box in my experience is that you put the money in, but it never goes out. Yeah, I think I remember having one for a long time in my 20s in San Francisco that was full of coins. It felt like, you know, this was, you know, a core case of, you know, a great existing Jewish practice that comes with a physical object and a physical practice, but it was it was broken in practice and technology could fix it. If you could just throw a Wi-Fi chip into that box, then you could do something as simple as just push a button. And every time you push a button, it would actually charge your credit card and donate a dollar to charity every single time. So it seems like that's when it felt like a simple idea. A button you push connects to Wi-Fi, gives money to charity. Great. Let's try to make that happen. Once I started thinking about that, though, I got really stuck on one point, which is if we imagine that it is a button that you push, like what happens when you push that button? Right? Is there a light that turns on or is there some sound that plays? Like it sort of felt like at the very least, you need some feedback that the batteries are on and this thing is actually working. But more than that, it's like this is actually a special moment for you and you want it to feel like something special and important is actually happening. As I was thinking about that, I just felt like anything I could imagine as an interaction that was sort of in the realm of normal technology, like buttons and screens and sounds, just felt wrong. It didn't feel appropriate for an act that was, you know, something actually important and spiritual for a person. And around that time, too, I came across a really important sort of foundational quote from the the Rambam, Jewish medieval philosopher, that it is preferable to give to charity in small amounts every single day, rather than to give to charity in large amounts infrequently. Because virtue arises from the repetition of good actions. This really sort of turned my thinking on its head a little bit, um, because the Rambam is pointing out that the whole point of this act is not only to get money to people who need it. It's also important for you that this is an ongoing daily spiritual practice, which is going to change you. So that shifted my focus from thinking about this just as you know a technology for transferring money efficiently to thinking about it as a technology for creating a spiritual experience that is meaningful, beautiful, joyful, that sort of becomes something that you want to be a daily habit that you can do every single day. In a way, what I hear you describing is that this process of trying to create a physical object that would not only do a thing, like in this case, help poor people, but that the really important thing was this this daily experience of it, this sense that in trying to design a new version of this ritual object, it makes you think about what ritual is really trying to do and how one does that. 
which is important for things way beyond physical, internet-enabled ritual objects. So I hope anybody is listening to this, even if they're not interested in creating ritual objects that are internet-enabled. But keep going and, and explain yeah. to us, okay, how did this thinking continue? Yeah. A common thread between a lot of rituals, um, this is like I remember Joseph Campbell saying in particular, is that they they want to be a little bit weird, right? They want to take you out of the mundane and your normal flow and the way you normally do things in order to take you into a spiritual experience. So it's like you want to mark something with a ritual by doing something a little bit unusual. You know, for us, like whipping out your phone and opening an app or like pressing a button on a gadget, that's like as mundane as it gets for us. And that just like ties this whole ritual back into a place that is full of distractions and concerns that aren't necessarily spiritual. So it it sort of brought me to this place of thinking about what this object could be like that said like, I want it to be entirely physical. I want it to be based in your body and that the physical motions of your body are what powers it. And I want it to have you know, sensory interactions, that it has maybe a tactile kind of sense to it, that it's not just something that's virtual on a screen. And that's you know, for the sake of making it special, because when it's special, then it can have meaning to you. We're starting to think about wanting to create spiritual practices that are become a practice, right? Something that you do every single day, even if it just takes a little bit of time. And so we want to give you as much joy and satisfaction in your body as possible to sort of build up that sense that this is a meaningful and important thing for you to do. Spiritual hardware shouldn't look like normal hardware. It shouldn't look like a gadget. It shouldn't have screens. It shouldn't have buttons. It shouldn't be made of plastic. It should be something that is like a, a holy ritual object that's meaningful to you. One of the other, I think, most interesting ideas that came out of this thinking was that sort of realized that most technology, almost all technology, has an implicit or explicit goal of speed. That the faster the technology gets your thing done, the better it is. The more efficient it is, the better it is. And that's that's why people talk about at the click of a button, because that's just so fast and so easy. But if you're talking about a spiritual experience, actually what you want is slowness. You actually want the process not to be as fast as it could possibly be, but to force you to slow down, take a breath, gather your thoughts, get fully present into it. So that's been a really fun and kind of different goal of this project is to specifically design physical gadgets that don't go as fast as they can and force you to slow down and wait in a satisfying way, not in a frustrating kind of a way. With a physical box, like the, the physical act of picking up a coin, a physical coin in your hand, and then dropping it into a box and hearing the sound, like all of that embodies what we're going for here. It's a tactile experience, takes a little bit of time. So we started the project by thinking about a new kind of a box that is actually powered by a coin. But you know, unlike a physical Tadaka box where the coin goes in and then that's out, this is something where you could have a slow process of picking up and inserting the coin and it's slowly then coming back to you so that you can use it as many times as you want and donate as much as you want over and over without the requirement of you bringing something to the box in order to use it. So what Dan asked is kind of where I was thinking too around how even if you're not somebody who themselves designs a ritual object, this is of or a digitally wired ritual object, like this is of deep relevance because it points to much bigger questions about what our rituals actually do and what our material culture, to use like a fancy academic term, but like what our objects, our stuff do Jewishly and as human beings beyond just our Jewishness. So I kind of want to zoom out. I mean, we've talked to scholars of Jewish studies, um, including some of our earliest episodes. We had Vanessa Oaks on. We've, we've talked with them about why stuff matters. We we live in a world that for a long time, for a, a lot of harmful reasons, diminished the importance of things and elevated the importance of ideas. And I say harmful because I think there's a lot of ways in which uh, that was used to call out certain groups of the world as like primitive because they're into objects and things and other groups of the world, mostly white Europeans, as sophisticated because they're into ideas. But so I want to kind of ask you, you're you're devoting your life. You, you were the founder of Safaria, which is a place with a ton of texts and beautiful thoughts that is not so much about tangible stuff, 
that we mobilize in rituals. I mean, sh- look, lots of people use safaria in context with those material culture, those objects. But I kind of want to ask you really broadly, like, why does stuff matter to our Jewish lives or our spiritual lives? Like, you could be doing a lot of things in the world and you're focused on finding practices, to use the word you did just earlier, through stuff we can touch, stuff we can maybe hear, stuff we can see. Like, why does that matter in a world that sometimes tells us that it's not about that, it's about ideas? Most of us already have an intuition about this. And the realm of ideas exists in our world in some ways with screens. You know, like the way that we interact with computers via screens is this like purely flat ideal interface to a realm ideas. And it's incredibly useful. It's not it's not bad at all. Like, you know, certainly my work on Safari, like I believe that the free exchange of ideas is empowering and important. But I'm I'm guessing that all of us have this intuition that screens are not enough, right? Like everybody has this worry that like when the whole world just becomes mediated by screens, we're losing something and we're missing something. And basically the reason that that is, is because we are embodied. Like we live in bodies, we have bodies, like that is our primary world. Um, And there's so many kind of aspects of our own bodies and experience that you really have to access through our physicality we're in a world where we're in danger of losing that perspective as like everything becomes an app or a website. We do lose focus on how to have experiences that are, you know, physically based and meaningful to us. Um, And again, I don't think it's a, a strict dichotomy. I don't think it's not one or the other, like we're, we're learning how to live in harmony of these two worlds. But I think right now, especially in the world of technology, we're focusing too much on screens, which is this world of disembodied, pure ideas. So let's talk more about that harmony. If, I, if I'm hearing you right, you're hinting at the ways in which we have really stratified realms of our current human experience into things that are digital and things that are, I'm going to say, quote unquote, but people say it without the quotes, things that are in person. I have made a vow to myself actually out loud. I like wanted it to be in the world. There's traditional concepts of Jewish vows that require uttering aloud. Um, I've made a vow to myself not to use virtual to refer to digital things and not to use in person to refer to offline things, because I think that that suggests a total duality that is not true in the way that you were describing with that harmony. I really want to get to how your spiritual hardware is actively upending that dichotomy. That's what I am most drawn to about it. Because when you are interacting with, whether it's that initial tzedakah box idea, that it is a physical object that could live in your kitchen or your dining room or wherever it is. And so it is, quote unquote, in person but it's digital. It's also virtual. It, it is it is in conversation with the organizations that it supports and potentially with other people around the world. And so it totally blasts open something that needs to be blasted open, in my view, which is the notion that the digital isn't, in fact, a space where like, we can have meaningful experience, where we can be in community with other people, because it has blurred into a realm the offline that we know can be meaningful. So can you talk to us a little bit more about how this can upend the ways we conceive of both? Uh, this is like the biggest picture question of all time. Like, can you talk about how this upends how we conceive of the online and the offline and how it might start to push us towards a world in which those are more thoroughly integrated? The last point of the sort of philosophy of what spiritual hardware is comes directly from this notion of a tzedakah box. You know, a limitation of physical objects in the past is that they are here only, right? They only exist exactly where you are. And when it comes to making a spiritual practice out of a physical object, a limitation of that is that it might start to feel like you're just doing it for yourself. Like this is something you do to make yourself feel better here alone in a particular room. 
you know, I think that's sort of not a traditional Jewish concept of like what spirituality is or can be. That's, you know, Judaism is very much not a a, uh, um, hermetic religion where you just go and sit alone in the woods and then you can achieve the greatest sainthood. Like we have such an emphasis on community and that the things that we do aren't just for ourselves, but they have to affect other people and, you know, be something that we do together. Thanks to technology, thanks to an embedded microchip that has Wi-Fi, we can stick it in the object. It makes it a gadget, but it doesn't have to look or feel like a gadget. And now you have the potential that a physical action, a physical ritual action that you do has a positive impact outside of yourself. That's sort of a picture of spirituality that is more exciting to me. It's, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing spiritual practices that are just about yourself and your experience. But I think it's bigger and I think it has the potential to be more transformative when you know that things that happen with you have an impact for somebody else outside of yourself. Like you say, it's sort of bridging this, you know, online versus offline world. But in in some ways, it's just using technology to give people real meaningful connection at a distance um, and to have them actually touch one another without having to, you know, just log into Zoom um, or do something on the internet in a way that might not feel or might not be as impactful as a spiritual practice for you. Yeah. And the idea that technology should have a major impact on the specifics of our Jewish practices is almost something that because it's so obvious, nobody even sees it. So for example, you know, everybody thinks it's the great traditional Jewish thing to light Shabbat candles, but not too long ago, nobody had candles. Like candles weren't a thing. Right. Like you couldn't get candles. And if at some point the technology of creating cheap wax candles was invented and that actually was probably resisted originally. And then over time, it was clear that it made it possible for more people to participate in this ritual without being unaffordable. And that was overall, I, I think, such a good thing that eventually people forgot that there ever was a previous way to do it. I wanted to make a quick note for folks like me who have anxiety about some of these things, which is just to mention that I remember those early conversations that we had. I was like, well, but what if my kid keeps dropping the coin over and over again? And he's like, and you're, and you said, there's an app and you would set a limit for how much it can give per day right. or whatever. So there are all kinds of ways that don't worry out there that, that, that you've thought of things like that and that there are all kinds of ways to make sure that, that the technological element of this allows you to fulfill your spiritual yearnings without, you know, accidentally uh, letting your kid spend all your money. So I, I'm curious yep. if you want to talk at all about more elements of this Tzedakah box idea that might be important to get a feel for it, or if maybe now's the time to talk about how this idea evolved into the next set of ideas that you're working with. What you said sort of really shows that there, these two worlds of screens and objects are not one or the other. All of the objects that we are now conceiving and trying to build, you know, have a purely physical interface for how you use them in the spiritual ritual moment. And they have an app. They also have an app for configuring them and setting things up because that's what screens are good for. Screens are great for going in and entering your credit card information or choosing your preferences. Um, we don't want a physical interface to be responsible for all those things. So these two things are paired together. But I think in most of the cases that we're imagining right now, they're just different moments. They're different sides of the coin. There's the actual ritual, the actual spiritual moment that you have. And then there's all the things that you have to do to think about it and configure it and set it up. And those two things are actually working together in all the projects that we're thinking about. I love that, actually. Like When I've talked about the power of ritual... I've often said like the power of ritual is that it gets us to do things that we have meant to do. That doing it in this habitual way where we don't have to think about it every time it becomes kind of mechanical is a good thing because it gets us to actually do it. And like you were saying earlier that Maimonides was saying that the idea that I do it ritually every day, every hour, every week, whatever it is, that that has a formative effect on me that's very powerful and important. But at the same time, if it becomes so rote, I start to lose connection to what I'm trying to do in the first place. And it feels to me like as you're starting to describe this, that the fact that I actually have to have an app, that I have to periodically make sure that I'm donating the amount that I meant to because the rote practice is not 
directly tied, for example, to the amount of money that I'm donating in this particular case. So I have to kind of go into the app periodically to think, am I doing what I want to be doing? It actually helps you strike this perfect balance between the everyday, the habitual element and the piece that I think in kind of more traditional Jewish practice is often lost in part because people say it's not our choice to do it that people sort of never step back and reflect on their practice and say, am I practicing the way that I want to be practicing? And you go into the app maybe once a month or once a year even, but not never. That's powerful. That's a piece of Jewish practice that I feel is often missing. Yeah, I agree. It's a, there, there's some sense that you know you have to prepare for the mitzvah, right? You have to prepare for the ritual action. And that preparation is also important. It might not feel the same and it might not be the same experience, but it brings, you know, can kind of ground the ritual spiritual in something that is, you know, mundane day to day that you have to do. Um, And with, you know, an app like this is we're imagining, you know, part of the experience is you thinking like, what charity do I want to support? What are the causes that are important to me? And going into the app and searching through different charities and making your choice. And so those moments of reflection outside of the ritual of, what do I care about? What am I choosing to support? Mediated through an app, which is great for listing lots of information and giving you choices. It's part of the whole experience. So it's funny. I also was flashing to some of these nitty gritty questions about whether we think about the gift or not. I mean, we we had some wonderful episodes and we're going we're gonna to go to other topics besides like giving money. I, I want it to be clear that like the Tzedakah box was one idea, but this is about many other things besides automating ways for us to give. But I'm thinking back to our unit that was about how we give. And I made a claim that I stand by now that I think one of the most important pieces of my Jewish practice of giving to organizations I care about and supporting causes that I believe will make the world better is a technological feature that didn't exist on, I mean, I don't know exactly when, but maybe the last decade, maybe the last 15 years in any meaningful public way, which is the checkbox I can check when I give a gift to something that says, do this every month forever. I can do that once when I give my initial gift and I give a much smaller gift because I'm not particularly wealthy, but like then whether I think about it or not, and that's kind of where I'm going with this, it, it happens over and over again. And Dan, what's interesting is I go back and forth. I'm more torn on whether it's a feature or a bug that I actually don't think about it. Like I go a year and a half sometimes with and like forget that I'm giving $6 a month for a total of 72 in a year to certain things like that. That happens. And I don't know that I look at that and say like, oi, I'm not conscious of it. So I'm like, it's affecting me less. Part of me thinks that the impact without the intention to use some like buzzwords, like the, me having the impact of that money without like thinking about it all the time may actually be aspirational. I'm not like I'm using a lot of maze and maybes like I'm not sure, but I, I want to like interrogate whether our intention with these various objects and our impact with these various objects, like which, like how we weigh those, because I think it comes up not just with an item like a tzedakah box, but it also would come up with all sorts of other ritual objects that could be in conversation with others that could be connected with Wi-Fi. Like it could be so, and this is a good moment to pivot to another of your objects, a spinning top that is connected to other spinning tops or that will be tied to other spinning tops around the world. And one person spinning it has an impact of spinning some other top somewhere in the world. And it could be that that person doesn't know initially that it's happening. It it just sort of beams to them. Um, So I'm curious if you can talk through some of those layers of how these objects help us think differently and be more conscious, but also how they help us have an impact even when we're not thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, So just to respond to sort of the the initial point of this idea that maybe it's better to have impact without thinking about it and just set something in motion. In some sense, I want to say that's pretty opposite to the philosophy of what we're trying to to build with these objects. I'm not sure I 100% disagree. I think there's definitely there's definitely a world for it. I think having automated giving does have the effect of give, having more giving happen and more people receive help that they need. And that's very important. But, you know, could you imagine signing up for some service that 
automatically lit your Shabbos candles for you every week and then you didn't have to do it, you know, that that would sound maybe kind of crazy. It's like that just kind of just kills the experience and the value of having that ritual altogether. I think it goes against Maimonides' point that it's better to do it frequently and that if you are only making the intention and the act of giving once a year and then forgetting about it, it doesn't have that same effect on you. Um, And again, I don't want to argue that we should eliminate that. I think it's an incredibly important mechanism for supporting charities. But wouldn't it be better if you also had a frequent, short, meditative experience in which you focus on your intention and renew your intention and, you know, make clear for yourself why, why it's important? Just having the opportunity to brainstorm like this with a new approach to doing a very old thing feels like it opens up possibilities for thinking about new ways to accomplish that really old thing. Technological change potentially gives us a way to execute and experiment with Jewish values that we've had for a long time, but never really found a way to turn into practice in a really in a really widespread way, you know, for most people. Where where we've come from this original idea of the tzedakah box being Wi-Fi to a more general thought of spiritual hardware as something that has a physical, personal component and a positive remote effect, as we've just started ideating on all sorts of ideas, like all sorts of different objects for different spiritual practices that could have different kinds of effects. We decided to get started, we would choose something that we thought was kind of really simple, like as simple as we could make it for it, not something that necessarily had some huge social impact, but would just demonstrate this principle. And we decided to do that around just the the pure experience of having joy and sharing joy, you know, of being able to send that around the world. So that, that's this idea of the top that we've now, um, you know, got a working prototype of where it floats in the air thanks to magnets and you can spin it whenever you want. But the effect of you spinning it is that somebody else's top magically starts spinning all by itself. Um, And, you know, the word magic comes up for us a lot, too. Like, we want these objects to feel magical. Because when you get that sense that, you know, magic is happening to you or you are empowered to create magic across the world, that's powerful. I think it really resonates with people. And, you know, it creates the kind of world, I think, that, that, you know, I want to see, that we want to see, where it feels like these objects are serving us to feel empowered to do good and to improve our own lives. So this idea of this top is that it might just be an anonymous thing that goes all around the world. And you might just be sitting there and see your top start spinning all by itself. And all you know from that is that someone, some human being somewhere in the world is having a little bit of fun right now. Um, And that might rub off on you. And it becomes a sort of network of sharing that experience of joy. We've also, you know, been thinking about and building for a case where maybe it, it, maybe you do know who it is. Maybe it's your long distance partner or your grandmother or someone else. So that in that case, you see it spinning and you get that feeling even amplified a little bit more, maybe that, you know, specifically who is feeling that feeling right now. So I love that you talked about the idea of magic, because I do think that these objects are magical. I also think a lot of rituals are magical. I don't mean to say that these uniquely are. I think, and I've said this on the podcast and in the past, like the the ritual service of Havdalah, which transforms the reality of the universe, or at least of your area from Shabbat to not Shabbat on a Saturday night. I think that is a magical act. And that's my reading of traditional sources. It, they suggest that human beings and actually not only God have the power to say words which is to say cast spells and smell some things and light some fire and have some wine involved. Like everything about that, if we if it wasn't Jewish, we would look at that and be like, oh, it's like sorcery. It's, it's like a magic yep. thing. And I say that only is good. I, I, I don't mean that as disparaging. I think that that reflects well on Havdalah. It's my favorite, favorite of all Jewish services. I think the magical act um, and even when we know that it's not magical, it's that somebody did something across the world and it affected our device, like like with the top. I mean, I'm thinking about like a menorah, which because you challenged me, you said before that like if somebody were to light your candles for you, like that or your Shabbat candles, like yeah, you could sign up for a thing that automates that, but it would destroy the whole point. And I'm like, I agree. And I'm thinking about Hanukkah specifically where many of us, not everyone, but many of us have 
menorahs that we light with, you know, candles and flames. And we have our little electronic one that we twist the little lights in and it's in the window. That's like the most visible. I like that using that one because that stays lit the whole time. It's public. Like if the goal is to publicize the miracle in the traditional sense, having the electric menorah that actually stays lit and is in the window is better than having a menorah that the candles go out and then it's not as visible. So I, I, that's my practice. I'm imagining not that somebody would light my electric menorah for me, but what if there were, there were, you know, hundreds of us or thousands of us or however many that opted in and each night when we twist that, we, I'm thinking actually of Safari where like recently everybody got to sign up and you can have your own letter in the Torah. And so like, if you twisted that, it would connect you to, to one other menorah somewhere in the world. And they would be told like, somebody just shamished, like somebody just lit your shaman or like helped light your candles. Yep. And then in return, when I twist in like the, the candles that are not the, the main candle, the, that goes first, I would get a notification that like this person helped light yours. Helped, right. And, and then you get a little notification that's like, and everybody has opted in. You're not just battering people with this. Like everybody has opted in and you get a little notification of like, here's their email or here's how you can contact them. Send a happy Hanukkah. Like you, you just became friends with somebody in Croatia who's doing Hanukkah. Yep. When I think about that, I, like you can tell me, I, I think that technology is probably around. I don't think that would be an impossible thing to do. And that really energizes me because there are people who light candles alone. And w- would this replace the feeling of lighting with a bunch of people around you? No. But would having that contact and the chance to interact with the note mean something? Maybe. And would it even be magical? Maybe even yep. though we know how the wiring and the the connections are working. So I'm curious, like, yep. what does that, uh, I was going to say light up for you. I didn't mean that as a pun, <laughs> but now I do. What does yep. that light up for you? I, I love it. It's a, it's a beautiful idea. I have not thought about something like that before. And it it's like exactly right in line with the kind of things that we're trying to do. And just to point out, before you even start thinking about technology for a menorah, the you know the the core mitzvahs around the the Hanukkah lighting are twofold. There's this dual purpose of one is that you have to publicize the miracle. That's to say you have to have an effect outside of yourself, and the other is that you have to derive pleasure from the light of the candles yourself. It's like it's got to feel good, be important for you, and go out there in the world and have some kind of effect. You know what you're describing about moving from candles to like a light bulb that you screw in kind of shows a tension between those two, right? Because, you know, I I probably feel, many probably feel the candles are more magical. They're more meaningful for me, but they may be less visible. They may be less durable outside of my own home. Um, it may not give you the opportunity to, um, you know, have this global network of people lighting candles together where I do something here and then someone in Croatia has their candle lit. You know, I would say ideally, and this is where the work that I'm doing right now gets into all sorts of fun and bizarre technical engineering sort of problems is that ideally I'd say, don't use a light bulb, use a candle and find a way for the technology to let the candle send the signal via Wi-Fi around the world so that you still, you get the best of both worlds. If you can figure out how to achieve that technically, which is the kind of stuff we're working on. Well, let's talk about another one of the objects that I know you're working on now, because it seems really, it, it really moved me. It really got me excited which is called the giving fountain. And tell me if I'm describing this right or not, but it's kind of like the tzedakah box that we've been talking about. But instead of putting a coin into it, you pour water into the middle of it. And it does this like beautiful flowing water around. For me, it called to mind, and I I wonder whether this was part of the inspiration. There are these Kiddush cups that you can buy in Israel maybe you could buy them elsewhere too, that I've always wanted and my wife won't let me buy it. And you pour the wine into the middle and it comes out into like six different little cups that everybody can take one. And I think that's so cool. And I've always wanted one. So this is seems like that very is, similar by the, way, to the that. Kiddush splitter, I think they're sometimes called. Okay. That that was exactly the inspir- that was exactly the inspiration for the form that this object is. Okay, so I'm so excited now. and I hope my wife doesn't listen to this episode because then I can buy the giving fountain. And uh, for, in my mind, it'll be the Kiddush cup thing I've always wanted, the Kiddush splitter, but she will be excited about it because it's actually giving to others. And this is my understanding of it, is that you pour this water in and it kind of 
has this beautiful flow, and then it donates money to a food bank. The Tadaka box, by putting kind of a fake coin in it, is a little bit kind of stuck on the paradigm of the original object. So in a sense, it's it's kind of nostalgic. It's and it, But nostalgia only works for people who have the nostalgia for that thing. I could imagine in one or two generations, people are like, why are we putting a fake coin in this thing? Like, why don't we just press a button? What is a coin? Yeah, what is it? You know, right, definitely, what is a coin is really what's going to be. Whereas the experience of coming to the table, like I was imagining when I was reading about this, I was imagining my family. And unfortunately, my kids are, you know, older and are all going to be out of the house soon. But I was imagining a time when I had young children where we would sit down every meal that we would sit down to. The first thing that we would do would be to pour a glass of water into the giving fountain, which is in the middle of the table. And let's say we've set it up on the app that $10 would be donated to a food bank. And we would do that at every single meal that our family had. That feels so powerful. Like It feels that my children would grow up with that practice, and it would be almost inevitable that they would be giving people, you know, that they would be people who are formed by a physical action at every meal that we're giving to those who don't have a meal. It, it just feels really, really powerful to me. It feels like fundamentally it's the same idea as the Tzedakah box, but instead of being stuck on the nostalgic idea of putting a coin in, it's using the technological evolution of this to find even a new mechanism for for making the thing happen, which doesn't require a coin anymore, because like you say, we don't have coins anymore. So maybe just on the description of what this object is, as we're currently building it, just, you know, one addition is that we are working on sort of engineering, you know, a series of sort of snaking and spiraling channels to specifically control the flow of water so that when you pour it in the top, it's a slow process of watching the water move downwards and then at some point fall and then spiral into a center, which, you know, we're trying to accomplish two things there. One is we're trying to make it slow, right? Like it's not push of a button. It's not just pour the water. It's pour the water and then wait, you know, 10, 15 seconds to watch a process unfold. And the other is to just make it really beautiful and satisfying. Like as we've been testing with these channels of flowing water, we're finding them mesmerizing. You know, when we started thinking about magical objects, you know, thinking about these things as something that, you know, physical objects that have some magical powers, I got in my head that I really just, I wanted a cauldron. I just was thinking about a cauldron as an interesting magical object. Then it became obvious that the cauldron is about cooking food, that the, the spiritual practice associated with this cauldron should be about feeding the hungry. And that we should have a way that whenever you cook food yourself, it has the effect of sharing what you cook with somebody else. We quickly realized that it really wasn't feasible for us to make it the pot itself because people are so picky about their cookware. They have so many shapes and sizes. So that's where we got to this potentially dangerous idea of something that you insert in your food while you're cooking that triggers the donation. We realized that was going to be a safety nightmare. Thought about then moving it from the act of cooking to the moment before you start a meal. And so that's where we've been centering our thinking around this as a ritual before you eat, after the food is done. For a while, we were thinking about that as something that you would actually physically make an offering of your food. Like take a spoonful of whatever you cooked and put it into this magical vessel that would trigger a donation. Then we got lots of feedback that if it's about feeding the hungry, wasting food just doesn't doesn't fit. It feels very strange. Even if it's, you know, symbolic, it just doesn't feel right to be sort of wasting food while you're trying to share your food with other people. So that brought us to water, right? That brought us to something that's still associated with the act of eating, but, you know, we we can reuse it and recycle it through this uh, this fountain as we go. The water brought us to the Kiddush splitter, you know, thinking about interesting ways of channeling water and having it controlling the way it moves. Um, and that sort of brought us to the to the fountain, which, like, like you say, it's not nostalgic. It's like water is something that I don't think people are ever going to say, what is water? I hope not, right? That it's really something very fundamental. It just feels like we've gotten down to something really basic and really simple. It doesn't have moving parts. It doesn't have a lot of stuff going on. It's just an object that channels the flow of water in a beautiful way. And then we can tie that beautiful act to giving money to a local feed bank and helping to feed people. So I want to notice something and then open it up to you, which is the the journey of this. We started with a Sadaka box. 
which is a Hebrew word, and it's a ritual object associated specifically with Jewishness. And it doesn't, what's interesting is tzedakah boxes, they go back a ways, but they don't go back, you know, thousands of years. In the same way that Dan was saying, we take for granted candles when candles in the modern sense are not actually that old. I'd say the same thing about tzedakah boxes, maybe even more so. But what I notice is we, we, we're talking about a tzedakah box in one case, Hebrew word, classic Jewish object. And what we're talking about now is a giving fountain that somebody looking at it would not know, ah, Jewish. And I'm saying that not as, what the heck, why? That's the worst. But as that's interesting, because it's also true of some of your other newer objects, including the top, by the way. When I saw the top, my first thought was like, this this feels like a dreidel, but we're not calling it a dreidel. We're calling it a top. I'm curious because that points to like, you want this not just to be specifically Jewish because it wouldn't, it's not like it would be harder to make that a dreidel, at least as as I understand this technology. And so I kind of want to ask, like, what's the deal with that? But from a mostly value neutral space, I will say like, when I think about what excites me with spiritual hardware, if I were to have the brainstorm sesh with my friends about like, let's figure out all, because you've opened that up for me. That's the gift you've given me is I have never thought about this in my life until I heard about this. And I've like started generating like, what's the Wi-Fi connected mezuzah? What's the, like, what's the, Mm -hmm. those are my sort of questions. And what's interesting about that is that that, to use terminology we've used since the very beginning of this podcast, one could argue that those are quote unquote sustaining innovations. It's taking an existing ritual object like a mezuzah, like a menorah and saying, ah, how do we do a different version of that? And that's a lot of what I am energized about because I think it allows us to drastically upend what we have thought the functions of some of those things are and make them not just individual, but collective. The mezuzah, for example, I think has huge potential to be in conversation with other people who have them. And my idea that I said once on the podcast was that it could talk to you and and give you reminders of your aspirations and values in the world because it's supposed to remind you of the Shema historically. But in changing that, we'd be radically upending what mezuzah even stands for. But what you're doing seems to be objects that would be starting from scratch. It's not new version of menorah, new version of mezuzah. It's new. It's its own thing. I mean, I guess there are fountains at the mall where people throw money in and sometimes that might go to charity, but this is not a not really a version of that. So I'm kind of curious to ask, like, what's underneath that choice? Is it a conscious choice in the way I'm receiving it? And if it is, why go to new objects and not sit with our traditional Jewish objects and find radically new and Wi-Fi connected ways to use them? Yeah, good question. It has also been sort of a, a feature of the evolution of this project from this Jewish object, the Tzedakah box, to where we are now, is really expanding the scope of what we're doing and not thinking that we're exclusively creating or reimagining Jewish objects or that these objects are only for Jewish people. The core idea of a Wi-Fi Tzedakah box, there's no reason that's for Jews only. And wouldn't the world be a better place if more people had this personal experience and were able to give more money to charity, no matter if they're Jewish or not? We've come to a place now where we think of this as a project for everybody, that we're creating spiritual experiences with positive effects, not only for Jewish people. And in, in that case, they don't have to be Jewish objects that we're reimagining. You know, my experiences starting and working with Safaria for, for many, many years, that was corely a Jewish project, right? There's really no way around that. We were focused on Torah and the Jewish textual tradition, and it, it's impacted a lot of people who are not Jewish. But there was really no world in which we just said that this is a, a universal project. It was a Torah project. The act of giving is not specific to Jews. In our work, it is the case so far that literally, you know, and we're not working with a great artist and industrial designer named Itamar Conforti to conceive and build these objects. He also happens to be Jewish. Everything we've come up with so far is inspired by a Jewish practice or a Jewish value, sometimes a Jewish object, but not necessarily. So it is the case for us that we feel like we are taking you know, valuable Jewish practices and trying to reimagine them in a way that makes them more accessible to more people. 
not necessarily keeping them as the Jewish thing. Um, I think that case by case, we'll have to see if it makes sense to sort of explain what an object in four and what it does in those terms. But right now, we're not committed that it has to be in Jewish language um, or you know, for Jewish people only. I mean, I think certainly as we talk about where did these things come from, what inspired us, what's the history? I mean, I think even in the sort of the marketing that we offer to these objects, we will tell that story, but they're intended to be for everyone. Um, and I definitely sort of feel that th- there is a Jewishness in that, is that we are a light unto the nations. And so part of the project here is taking what Jewish wisdom that we have that's impactful um, and putting it in a form that's available and accessible to everybody. I think as I've been reflecting on what you're saying, there are four different layers that I can imagine. And just spoiler alert, you, Brett, and your company and whoever, maybe it's not even your, you know, some band of fellow travelers would do all four of these things. And the only sadness that I have is if you don't do all four, because I want somebody to do all four. And I think that you're thinking about this in just the right way. So number one is that layer of just making the Jewish ritual objects better. Like Lex was talking about sort of sustaining innovation. How can we make a menorah a better experience? How can we just have a mezuzah, but it tells me when I walk out the door in the morning, what kind, you know, what are my aspirations? And when I come home, it asks me how I did or something like that, that it kind of gets me focused, right? So that's that's kind of like, how does this thing be just better for Jews the way that we're using them? You know, number two is something that's inspired by Jewish objects. Like in my mind, the giving fountain is this, that I think of it as a tzedakah box, but a different kind and better and actually will be more moving to me than a tzedakah box in my Jewish practice, in my family's Jewish practice. And I want to have that. I'll be your first customer. I want to have that. But I will think of it as my family's tzedakah box. Number three is that people, whether they're Jewish or not, can have objects that are inspired by Jewish wisdom, by Jewish rituals, like the giving fountain, and they may just never know that it's Jewish. And that's totally okay, because like you say, we're we're trying to be a light unto the nations. It doesn't matter that you necessarily have to consciously know that I'm using a Jewish object. The fact that we think we have Jewish wisdom and it goes out into the world more broadly and people don't even realize it's Jewish wisdom. I mean, I think it's actually better if they do in a certain way, because then they'll maybe help Judaism get better, so then we can make even more better objects out into the world, like, in a way. So there's something there, but but I see its value anyway. And then there's the fourth that says, we've done this with Jewish wisdom. What Buddhist wisdom is out there? What Christian wisdom is out there? Let's make a whole world of ritual objects that are drawn from all the great wisdom traditions of the world, but I think that my only worry there is like we're creating a kind of Esperanto, you know, we're we're kind of creating a, an attempt to create a universal language or a universal religion. And Esperanto I wonder... was very Jewishly, it was shaped by a lot of Jews proportionately yeah, but, uh, for what it, it's worth. Yeah, fine. And it didn't quite accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. And that's what, what I'm saying is that the attempt, to, maybe this is what you're saying too, Lex, I'm saying like the the attempt that says, can we take these values and try to universalize them is the goal, but maybe isn't the pedagogy. Like, you know, maybe the best way to have people be able to encounter Jewish wisdom in powerful ways is to sort of name it as Jewish. I just don't yeah. know. And I know that you don't know. I'm, I'm just wondering aloud about all these possibilities. Yeah. And I was going to say just sort of between two and three is, you know, maybe there's a goal of having these objects be kind of universal and available to everyone and promoting the Jewish wisdom that comes with them. Like not Mm -hmm. just letting it be there, but actually trying to, as a goal, like spread the idea that, hey, this comes from Jewish wisdom and let the whole world know that that's the case. So again, that may or may not be a goal for a, a project like this. And again, I have to say, I totally agree. I want to do all four of those things. Ideally, if we can, you know, raise enough money and get the right people to succeed at making these things. Um, when I started, I had the tzedakah box. I was like, okay, we're reimagining Jewish ritual objects. I sat down and made a list of every Jewish ritual object I could think of and just tried to brainstorm how could these be reimagined in this way that they're about both some experience for you and a positive remote effect for other people. 
at that time, I couldn't think of any other good ideas. I mean, I maybe should have thought harder, Lex, if I'd talked to you, I would have gotten this great idea for the Hanukkah to be able to, to have a remote effect. But it just, I felt stuck. Like it didn't feel generative enough for me. The Tadaka box was kind of the easy case. And the thing I realized in thinking about this project is that it's actually not a good idea to start with the object. It's not a good idea to think about some historical physical thing and think, how do I reimagine it? What you start with is the spiritual practice or the value that it's trying. You have to think like it's not a cauldron. Who cares if it's a cauldron or not? It's about feeding the hungry and figure out a way to instantiate that practice and that value in the right object that fits it. I just find it's much more generative, like more interesting ideas come up when you start with the practice and the value rather than focus on physically what did this thing look like, you know, for Jews or for Buddhists historically. Not to say that it's not Jewish, right? It's still like, you know, feeding the hungry is a Jewish value, but it's also not only a Jewish value, right? So it's it's possible to take that from a Jewish source and then instantiate an object which connects to, to lots of different spiritual or religious or, you know, secular ethical practices. As an example of what you're talking about, can you talk about the, what I think of as the Mishaberach stone, but I don't, but you have yeah. some kind of universal name for it that I'm not remembering. We've just been calling it a prayer stone. This is an object that is about sending and receiving, you know, support, love, goodwill to people around the world. Um, and like you say, Misha Barath stone, it was directly inspired by a Jewish practice, a friend of mine, Rabbi But not David, an object. Not an object. Yeah. By a practice, not a thing. My friend, Rabbi David Kasher, was telling me about how during COVID, his prayer practice was really bad because he didn't have community in Minyan. But something that was super powerful, maybe more powerful, was he get, he'd get called up to say Amishaberach. That if somebody was sick, he'd get on Zoom for five minutes, say Amishaberach, and like, you know, everybody felt it. It was meaningful and powerful and impactful. So that kind of, you know, clearly said to me, like, aha, this is a remote effect over technology that's spiritual, meaningful, and it works. There was no object associated with it per se, but as we started thinking about it, we just conceived of a stone, like a, an actual sort of round, somewhat heavy stone that can fit in your two hands. Um, and that the, you know, the interaction with it is that you just pick it up and you hold it and you sort of wait uh, to, to sort of activate it. And that gives you this physical embodied tangible ritual that then once the stone is active, you can record a prayer for a person. You can say, you know, this is a, a prayer for somebody who doesn't know how they're going to pay rent this month or who has a loved one in the hospital. And then that same stone, if you needed a prayer, you'd be able to pick it up and say, hold it against your chest and receive the words of, of people out there in the world um, who have you know taken hopefully the time to thoughtfully record a message of support for a person in your situation. So this is a question partially for you, but it's largely for all of our listeners out there to play with. I mean, not going to lie, I kind of want to see that notepad where you took down the original. It's probably not a literal notepad. You work for, you You founded Safaria, but like <laughs> your digital notepad of all the ritual objects you wrote and like you're saying you hit a dead end. I think that there's some non-dead ends. I think there's some through streets on that front. And I don't mean to like poach from you and like get a bunch of people to the to their foot in the door before you, but I... I am ready, like you've opened up the most exciting generative conversation in the zone of, again, material culture, in the zone of like Jewish objects. I think what you have identified is that we have the ability already right now to have an entirely new genre of Jewish ritual object. And now that you've opened that, it's one of those ideas where I hear it and I'm like, it would actually surprise me if it would surprise me more if in a few hundred years, assuming humanity hasn't been wiped out by climate change, if humans exist, it would, it would surprise me more if that wasn't an entire zone of spiritual object than it would surprise me if it caught on and was. Like that just feels like totally correct. And so I feel called. I feel like we're actually behind. I feel like this should already be like we have the mezuzah thing. We have the the some kind of Wi-Fi connected. When you break the glass at a wedding, it kicks in some effect for something that you have it for the shofar blast that you have I mean, like throwing out every single thing. I feel like 
all of that is potentially possible. I can hear the emails already of people saying, oh, you're trivializing it and you're just making like these things are magical on their own and they don't need to do something else. Like, I think sometimes they do. I think for a lot of people, these rituals don't actually like soak in and have the impact that on paper we think they are. So I I want to try and create additional maps of meaning for them. So that's one set of brainstorms. And I'm really like, email us listeners, like come up with your ideas. Let's let's have this episode be one we look back at in three years and be like, wow, that planted the seed for this really cool project that then got a grant from somebody. That's number one. But then the other side is I really appreciate what you're saying about, about making this accessible to the world. We're, we're fresh off of a unit not too long ago where we talked about how the boundary between Jews and non-Jews is and for us, this isn't bad. It is very permeable and very complicated. And we want Jewish things to be making their way into the broader world. So the other brainstorm is what are those objects that we can fashion that are like the Mishaberach stone, like the prayer stone, inspired from Jewish sources, but not Jewish objects? So I guess what I'd love to hear from you is like, obviously, you're, this is asking people to like, compete with you. It's a weird thing. But like, if you were giving advice to folks that are trying to generate who are inspired by you to think, I believe this is a movement of new spiritual modalities or objects, what should they be thinking about as they do so? Yeah, good question. I'm totally open to other people having great ideas, building them themselves or teaming up with us if they've got something interesting they want to share. It might depend on what your goals are. You know, if if you are a Jewish person and your goal is to revitalize Jewish practice and Jewish objects to make it, you know, better for the the Jews to be able to do it, then maybe you do need to think about the mezuzah. Like that's going to be there. Does it have a use case or not? You know, when I said I ran into a dead ends with all of those projects, it, you know, it wasn't so much that there are no ideas. It was just there were no. I didn't. I personally didn't come up with any good ideas. I came up with a lot of bad ideas. Like. Like you say, there's a risk of making these things kind of cheesy by throwing in some random technological feature. So, you know, that, that that's a big advice is like, even if you start with the object, you got to get really clear on what the point of the object is or what a point is, because they, they may have many and, you know, really focus on that value in order to arrive at a concept for an effect that makes sense. I'm personally interested and concerned with effects that happen at a distance that can impact people who aren't there with you. That doesn't have to be a requirement. You could think of all sorts of great ideas using technology that are just about making your experience better. And that's great as well. And the other approach also, like I said, is don't start with the object. Don't think about it. Don't, be, don't limit your thinking and imagination to any particular historical pre-existing form. Um, instead, think about the point. Think about what it's for and let the form follow from that. The sharing fountain, you know, we started with this idea of feeding the hungry, of sharing your bounty with other people. And as we iterated through different forms and concepts that we had to throw out, we arrived at water and then we arrived at the Kiddush splitter. Then we came back to some existing Jewish object. We we're like, aha, that's an interesting form that can instantiate working with water to feed the hungry. So that's been our process so far. Um, if any listeners right now are interested in brainstorming about this, like feel free to reach out to me and I'm happy to brainstorm along with you. Well, that's an amazing note to end on. I really hope we hear lots from our listeners on this front, but Thank you so much, Brett Lockspizer, for opening up this conversation generally and for having this literal conversation with us today. Thank you so much. It's been really fun to talk with you both about this. And thanks so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. As a reminder, we've got ApocryFest, our amazing Hanukkah initiative. I think it's amazing. I, th I think that many other people will think it's amazing, but you should try it because if you're thinking it might not be amazing, the only way to find out is to head to judaismunbound.com slash apocrypha, A-P-O-C-R-Y-P-H-A. Sign up for the listserv where you'll hear all sorts of cool things about the books of the Apocrypha, those books that didn't make it into the biblical canon, and you'll be able to decide if it's actually super amazing or not. So if you're doubting me that this initiative is super awesome, you'll have to find out. JudaismUnbound.com slash Apocrypha, that's where to go. You'll be able to sign up for an email list throughout Hanukkah where you will get all sorts of tidbits of wonderful wisdom and insight into many books of the Apocrypha. So don't hesitate to check that out. Also, we want to encourage you to be in touch with us. We said that just at the end of this episode, that 
especially in this case, brainstorm. Allow these conversations today and always to plant seeds for your own Jewish ideas. If you have visions of spiritual hardware of your own that could come to fruition with our help or with organizations like Brett Laxbizer's help or otherwise, send us a note. Let us know your visions. We would love, love, love to hear from you. And here are all the different ways that you can be in touch. First, there's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of our handles are at Judaism Unbound. Second, there's our website, JudaismUnbound.com, where you can check out show notes for this episode, all sorts of other resources, the aforementioned Apocryphest, many, many wonderful things. And you can always email us at dan at JudaismUnbound.com or lex at JudaismUnbound.com. We also, especially this time of year, as we head towards the end of 2023, are super appreciative of those who are able to set aside a financial donation of any size on either a monthly recurring basis or just as a one-time gift to support our work. And you can do that via judaismunbound.com slash donate. And the last thing we'd say is that, of course, support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.